This evening's talk um, is called Good Snowflakes. And that refers to a, a koan, one of the ones collected in one of the most famous um, of all collections, that of the Blue Cliff Record. It's attributed to a Tang Dynasty Zen teacher who's known as Layman Pang. And he's one of the few, if not the only, lay person. In other words, he didn't live in a monastery, wasn't a monk. Uh, we know nothing about him, really. He had a wife, he had a daughter, both of whom were also considered to be very accomplished practitioners. And this statement, which occurs pretty much out of any context, reads, good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else. Good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else. Um, I've always been struck by this, and I've pondered it, and reflected on it and meditated on it for many, many years. Um, as with all of these koans, um, to then offer some explanation of what it means is really rather beside the point. These koans are instances of, uh, of saying, not telling or sorry, not saying, not telling, showing, not telling. This is one of the mantras of the creative writing world, if any of you have ever been on such workshops. The injunction when you're writing is to show, don't tell. In other words, reveal your story, your characters, your world. Don't uh, stand back and tell people about what it is. Again, it might sound um, somewhat obvious, but it's actually very difficult to do. To show, don't tell. And when Pang says, good, snow good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else, he's showing us something. And um, it doesn't require an explanation. To explain it is to tell what it means rather than to allow the image somehow to speak for itself. You know, what is this thing? How did it get here? The cypress tree in the courtyard, three pounds of flax, and so on and so forth, are showing you something. And that showing has the effect, in some ways, of bringing the mind to a stop. And that, I think, very much uh, is where the power of these uh, teachings, these stories, resides. They bring the calculating mind to a stop. And you are left just with an image. And that image is something you can then attend to, ponder, allow somehow to come alive in a way that may be revealing. This is very much, I feel, at the heart of this practice. So I'm not going to try and explain to you what this means, but I'm going to um, offer some other images drawn from our own culture that might help us locate this picture of these good snowflakes that don't fall anywhere else um, in a perspective that might speak to us in the language of our time that may have a similar impact in some ways. And for me, this image um, evokes 
the very uh, fundamental sense of this world in which we find ourselves, this world into which we were thrown at birth, in which we gradually become aware of as our consciousness, as our language begins to become more refined, when we become more constructed as a coherent person with a history, with a sense of our future, our death. And the image that um, I'd like to reflect on is the image of the world as it is presented to us through the natural sciences. I'm not a scientist. I've not, I've not trained in the sciences. I, in fact, find a great deal of biology, physics, chemistry, and so on very hard to understand. I, I'm not wired in that way. Um, at school, um, I was always in the arts class, not in the science classes. I didn't get it, really. I found it very baffling and bewildering. I could never manage mathematics. But on the other hand, I find that when I read and or listen to uh, the radio or watch documentaries about the world as disclosed through the natural sciences, it brings, it, it, it evokes in me um, a sense that is almost religious in the sheer scale and vastness of space and time that is um, present. And it points to me very poignantly to the, uh, the, the utter contingency of existence the contingency of existence. Contingency means, on the one hand, that something arises contingent upon other circumstances. And we make contingency plans because we realize that what we might prepare for might get interrupted by other circumstances which we hadn't foreseen coming into play. And I think in many ways the idea of contingency is close to what the Buddha meant by paticca sam upada, usually translated as dependent origination or conditioned arising. And remember, in the early suttas, the Buddha uh, says that the person who sees dependent arising or contingency or paticca samuppada sees the Dhamma and the person who sees the Dharma sees conditioned arising, conditionality, dependent origination. So there's something very much at the core of uh, the Buddha's teaching that has to do with waking up to what I would call the utterly contingent nature of experience. And good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else, is in the way the Chinese imagination um, understands this teaching. Uh, once again, a, a very concrete, very uh, vivid image from the natural world, from a specific moment of the natural world that somehow shows contingency in some ways far more potently than the rather um, abstract arguments that we find in the Abhidhamma or that we find in the philosophy of Nagarjuna or in the various accounts of dependent origination in Indian Buddhist teaching. Those teachings, I think, are very valuable, 
but they once again operate at a level of abstraction that takes the mind away from the immediacy of what's happening in a given moment and turn us into a more conceptual, theoretical um, understanding, which can be helpful, but I feel is often one, two, or three steps removed from the facticity of the uh, singular moment. I suspect when I said, good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else, um, you probably found yourself recalling the experience of standing in a, uh, in a landscape with snow falling, with the flocon, the, the snowflakes floating down. And you know the way they sort of drift and float and weave and wave and eventually come to rest somewhere. And also I think something that layman Pung would not have known, but we do know, is that no two snowflakes are the same. There's something unique, something uh, uh, utterly specific in this highly ephemeral, contingent uh, structure of water, basically, under certain temperature conditions, weather conditions that allow for these snowflakes to fall, to come to rest, and of course, often quite quickly, to dissolve back into water and to evaporate and disappear. And this all occurs in a world that in its very origins is shot through with contingency and flux and change and poignancy. Beginning as we now understand from astrophysics, the Big Bang, so-called, um, the singularity, uh, as I think is the term used to describe a moment um, in which this all began a moment that is infinitesimally small and a moment that is in fact not a moment occurring somewhere that is not an anywhere. In other words, the rather commonsensical question, you know, what was there before the Big Bang? is actually meaningless because before there was no before. Before implies time. And time is what emerged only after, if we can use that uh, <laughs> phrase, uh, the Big Bang itself. The Big Bang created time and space. Before the Big Bang, there was no time and there was no space. So the notion of there being anything before or the Big Bang having occurred somewhere is totally meaningless. It's not that the Big Bang occurred there. There was no there then. There was no then then. <laughs> and yet somehow, uh, in a way that is way in excess of anything I can conceptually grasp, everything that we experience now, every little atom, every blade of grass, every breath we take, would not have occurred, would not be occurring had this singularity not erupted and generated uh, this universe. And when we think of the scale of the universe, um, the, um, the galaxies, and there are billions of galaxies, and we exist as a tiny little solar system within one of them. When you try to get your mind around the 
distances involved, it simply uh, is too much. You just can't do it. It, um, it brings the mind to a stop. Likewise, with the, um, if, if we turn not outwards into the far galaxies, but we turn inwards into the structure, the neurological structure of the brain, we find something similar. It, goes, it seems to go on likewise almost to what seems infinity, but on a microscopic scale. I went to a, I was actually participating in a, a conference on Buddhism and consciousness in uh, New Mexico some years ago. And one of the presenters was uh, a man called uh, Dr. Richie Davidson. He's done a lot of work on uh, neuroplasticity. He's very much at the forefront of people investigating the effects of meditation on the brain. And as part of his presentation, he showed a little five-minute video clip. And this five-minute vi video clip um, took the viewer through um, one square millimeter of a rat's brain. And, and, and it took five minutes, moving at a reasonable pace, just going through endless... Um, axons and dendrites and whatever those things are called in the brain and um, unfortunately it was set to some rather cheesy music but the point was that when, whether you look out into the distant stars or whether you look in to the, neuro, the, the neurological structure of the brain you are exposed to something very similar, in a way, something that is, uh, uh, seems almost endless, uh, complex, um, and, 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 and uh, yet utterly unfathom unfathomable and incapable of being uh, captured conceptually, at least by my mind. And it evokes, for me, much the same sense as these koans. And I feel that what the sciences show us um, is um, uh, a glimpse into this extraordinary uh, universe of which we are the tiniest, 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 tiniest little points um, existing for the briefest of of time, 50, 60, 70 years, which in the grand scheme of things is really nothing. And yet here we are. And to me, those um, accounts, those pictures, those, that little video that Richie Davidson showed, um, evoke a very similar feeling to the sense I find in doing son meditation, this sense of what is this, you know, how did it get here? It, 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 it awakens this quality of perplexity and inquiry. And to that extent is for me something sublime, beyond the capacity to really, you know, represent or pin it down nail it down. But if we follow this process through again in a very, very sketchy way, um, the Big Bang is supposed to have occurred about 15 billion years ago. This planet, uh, this, uh, yeah, the planet Earth, uh, coalesced from stardust and gases about 4 billion years years ago. And life, um, you know, organic life uh, began um, about, I think, I might be getting my numbers wrong, uh, I think it began about 2.5 billion years ago. Uh, the very first microorganisms in the oceans. 
out of which, and again, exactly how that happens, I just cannot conceive, <laughs> that somehow from inert or supposedly inert matter, there then began to arise self-replicating strands of DNA or whatever it is. And again, I'm sure there's people in this room who know an awful lot more about this than I do. So please take this with a, as a very much a layman's perspective. But I think the broad outline is rather well accepted and established now. And then about, um, uh, I think it was 65 million years ago, the planet was uh, populated by the dinosaurs, uh, well, in periods, the millions of years before then as well. And then suddenly there was a meteor impact um, in just off the Yucatan Peninsula near Mexico, a massive asteroid smashed into the earth, and effectively obliterated the dinosaurs. And pretty much many other forms of life as well, but it allowed the possibility of um, rather small little mammals, which were probably a bit like rats or mice, to suddenly find an opportunity uh, that previously was foreclosed because of the dominance of the dinosaurs that then led to this other evolution of uh, mammalian life um, that finally resulted in you and me. But again, there's something uh, profoundly contingent about all of this. Um, If that asteroid had not crashed into the planet, um, there's no reason, as far as I can tell, that the dinosaurs would still be roaming around um, doing what dinosaurs do, and um, the little mammals would maybe be making a rather, you know, living in the cracks and the crevices of the dinosaur world, and there'd be, we wouldn't be here at all. Uh, We would simply not have happened. So, in other words, the fact that this form of life evolved at all uh, is dependent upon effectively rocks flying around in space and uh, crashing into other rocks and having consequences on life forms that have evolved on those other rocks and bringing a certain line of evolution to an abrupt halt which creates ecological niches where other forms of life can emerge. And from this moment, um, then it began to develop into more complex forms of mammalian uh, creatures, um, getting closer and closer to what we now take to be the norm, namely you and me and all the other six billion homo sapiens sapiens who who walk this earth. But it's in terms of the time frame, uh, we are extraordinarily late comers on the scene. The um, uh, creatures, uh, human beings, are anatomically identical to us Um, first appeared, again, they don't always agree on this, but somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 years ago, which is really, really really nothing. And so uh, creatures who, um, they probably, they wouldn't have, they would have basically naked would have looked exactly like us. They probably had you know, they probably would not have had very good social habits or they would probably had personal hygiene issues. But the, the reality is that that's where we came on the scene. And at some level, this seems entirely accidental and arbitrary uh, that this happens at all. 
And uh, again, there's a, this is difficult, I think, for human beings to accept. We like, their, we like to have narratives and stories that explain, that tell us, uh, you know, why this happened. And we evoke um, beings like God, for example, um, who somehow set this whole human story into motion. The idea that it could actually be a purely contingent and haphazard event, uh, we find very uncomfortable. We have a sense that we're rather more, we're worth, we're worth more than pure accident. That there must be some reason for our being here. I mean, the Buddhists have theories of karma, of uh, endless lifetimes that generate effects, results, um, get, cause us to be born in one place as opposed to another. And this has been going on, apparently, according to classical Buddhist theory, forever. But again, the natural sciences simply don't back that up. Um, we have emerged, it appears, out of these uh, physical conditions um, and to some extent uh, uh, what appears to be through random chance and accident. Now Buddhism, you see, I think in principle doesn't, shouldn't really have an issue with this. Um, but I think as human beings we find this rather nihilistic, this view um, rather uncomfortable and rather somehow unworthy of what we um, aspire to in terms of the dignity of being human. But we might, I think, have to you know, swallow the fact that uh, that may not be the case. That we're here and these appear to be the conditions that gave rise to us being here. But if we bring it even closer to home, let's think about uh, not the, the contingency of human existence as such, the human race. Let's think of the contingency of uh, ourselves, the contingency of Stephen here and Kate there and Shad there. And go back to the point at which you were conceived. Your parents were having sex and um, there was uh, the meeting of one spermatozoan, uh, your father's, with an ovum of your mother's that resulted in the ovum being fertilized and that then uh, fertilized ovum managed to secure itself to the uterus wall and uh, in nine months grew into a viable uh, embryo that was born and here we are. <laughs> but just imagine that if it hadn't been that one of many million spermatozoa of your dad if it had been another one of those spermatozoa that had fertilized your mother's ovum, would the resultant person still be Kate or Stephen or Shad? Or would it be the equivalent of a twin of ours? It would be someone else, right? Or let's imagine that you were conceived in your mother's next ovarian cycle. Would that person be you? Or would it be someone else? And you can take it even, even further. Let's imagine in the midst of your parents' passionate lovemaking, the telephone rang. <laughs> now that might have been an annoying inconvenience for your mum or dad, but the result might have been that you don't get to exist. <laughs> that coitus interruptus meant that you didn't happen. Now again, I mean, I'm making a bit of a joke about this, but it's actually, it's actually rather, 
it's, if you reflect on this, it's, um, it points to the fact that your own existence is highly contingent, highly haphazard, that it's, it's far more likely that you or I um, would not have existed. The fact that we've come about, dependent upon the distant causes of evolution, the more proximate causes of the meeting of our respective parents' uh, reproductive cells, that's what has given rise to us. And here we are. Something profoundly contingent. So if we go back to Lehman Pung, good snowflakes, good snowflakes, they don't fall anywhere else. To me that captures the same sense of my father's spermatozoa, my mother's ova, the asteroids smashing into the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and whatever other contingencies and accidents and uh, chance events might have come along along the way and have just nudged the process a few degrees a different direction. Um, it, it, it's in some senses, it's, it's highly improbable that human beings exist at all, that we exist at all. And yet the curious thing is we take this so totally and utterly for granted. We take our own existence as just um, an unavoidable given, something that we might even feel sometimes rather disinterested in, bored about. We wake up in the morning, not aware, of, not consciously thinking of all of these millions and billions of years and incredible chance events that have given rise to us, and we think, oh, God. <laughs> another day on Earth, another day at the office. Uh, I wonder what's on the telly tonight. Now, this is a very odd way to... Um, to, to attend to something which is mind-bogglingly amazing. Um, and yet we don't notice that. And yet I feel that what, um, what the Dharma uh, is trying to point to um, is something that, as the Buddha put it, something that is clearly visible. The Dhamma, which is contingency and so on, is clearly visible, but he also says it's hard to see. In other words, we know this stuff, and I think science explains it in the most beautiful and the most vivid way that I can imagine. It's far more powerful, frankly, to read a book on evolutionary biology to get a sense of dependent origination than it is to read a rather dry Buddhist philosophical treatise on the same topic. It doesn't have the same impact at all. And again, what draws me to Zen is that it prefers the image to the idea, to the concept, and asks us to really ponder and meditate on the image, the snowflakes, the cypress tree in the courtyard. Now, of course, in the Tang dynasty in China, they had no knowledge of evolutionary theory or any of these things. But I find that, that um, our current worldview um, serves to, um, uh, to, to contextualize the cypress tree in the courtyard, the snowflakes, in a way that uh, profoundly um, heightens that um, traditional Buddhist idea of conditionality or contingency by setting it within this vast uh, expanse of this universe uh, and these 
incredibly complex brains that we inhabit. And so to ask ourselves, what is this? Um, or let's say, for example, for, for Hui Neng to ask Huai Zhang, what is this thing? How did it get here? It begins already to have resonances uh, for us that it could not ever have really had in Tang Dynasty China. What is this thing? How did it get here? At one level, we can answer this by picturing the Big Bang uh, that leads eventually to Huai Zhang's parents having sex, Huai Zhang getting born, and Huai Zhang saying, I think I'll go down to South China. It's all, in some ways, um, pointing uh, to this same uh, extraordinary um, uh, reality. This highly contingent, highly fluid, highly temporary, highly interconnected and interfused experience of which we are just one little pulsing bit. So when I ask myself, what is this? I often try to bring into mind, in the sort of the background, something about the experience of contingency that is shown, is revealed through our understanding of the natural world. And this to me also has a profoundly aesthetic dimension. And here I feel that um, we can learn a great deal from the language that was developed by people like Coleridge and Wordsworth and Keats and Edmund Burke, who wrote about it. Uh, this is back in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. And these people also were likewise um, uh, astonished and overwhelmed by the um, uh, the wonder that was being revealed through the natural sciences. There's often a sense that the romantics were rejecting the sciences. But there's a very good book by Richard Holmes, who has written biographies of Coleridge and Shelley, um, called The Age of Wonder, in which he shows how romanticism um, was very much a, uh, an aesthetic uh, imaginative response to the first uh, discoveries of this scientific world that had come out of the European Enlightenment. It wasn't in opposition. It was actually fed by these same uh, discoveries. And the difference, of course, is that these men were philosophers and they were poets. They weren't uh, physicists or chemists or uh, or mathematicians. And so the language they used was one of, uh, of the imagination. And here I think we can, I have found at least, uh, again, a very useful language that helps uh, to illuminate the kinds of practices we do in meditation, be it mindfulness or be it in son or other traditions. And the key term, really, uh, is, uh, that they all share in common is the idea of the sublime. The, the Romantics uh, sought out experiences of the sublime. Um, Coleridge, for example, would go hiking in the Lake Districts and um, would often wait until a violent storm approached and then he would set off up the hill um, with a bottle of brandy in one pocket and a bottle of laudanum in the other. And he would go into the heart of the storm and, um, and would experience the sublime. And the sublime, um, again, one of these terms that we use but I'm afraid we often use it in a rather trivialized sense. Um, originally meant for these people um, an experience that 
um, exceeded the capacity for representation. Exceeded the capacity for representation. In other words, there's something about a powerful storm at night, particularly when you're out of your head on opium and brandy, that brings the mind to a stop. You cannot uh, contain, you cannot uh, hold in your mind what is going on. It's the same we have, for example, when we're in a little boat out on a rough sea. Or simply the classic example of lying in a field at night and staring into the night sky. There's something about that experience that is overwhelming. And it's overwhelming because it brings the mind to a stop. The mind can't grasp it any more than the mind can grasp the square millimeter of the rat's brain or the Big Bang or these other things we've been speaking about. And the Romantic poets uh, actively sought such experiences because it's at these moments they felt that they were most fully alive. And another way that um, Coleridge defines the sublime, he says, it's the experiences that, that suspend the power of comparison. We can't say, oh, this is like that. Uh, we can't place the experience of the powerful storm at night in a convenient category and, and compare it to some other storm. The mind just doesn't need to work that way anymore. And if it tries, it somehow fails. There's nothing that can really um, adequately express what's being experienced there. Another characteristic of the sublime, and this we find in the writings of Edmund Burke, um, are the fact that these experiences are simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. Simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. We can't, as it were, uh, we're drawn to them. We're drawn to the, the swell of the sea at night in a little boat. We're drawn to the starry heavens. We're drawn to the power of, of a great storm. Um, and yet at the same time, that attraction is qualified by a very deep sense of fear. The, the fear and the attraction go hand in hand. It's very, actually, I was just reading something by Kierkegaard. Uh, that was his definition of anxiety, where attraction and aversion are in equal measure. What that produces is a deep sense of angst, a deep sense of disquiet. And yet it, it's a disquiet that is also deeply attractive. We're drawn towards it. Now, all of this language, I think, has many, many resonances with Buddhist thought. The idea of you know, being, being stuck in one's ego is basically being trapped in a very limited outlook on life. One that might make us have a sense of being secure, of being someone, of having a nice story that can in our minds that sort of gives us a, some kind of handle on what's going on. The whole notion of being embedded and stuck in concepts and language and words and theories, which of course the Zen people very much sought to dispel, get rid of this Buddhist theory, come back to the fact of sitting on the ground experiencing your breath, experiencing your body. Come back to the immediacy of life itself. So for me, the practice of zazen, the practice of meditation, is about um, allowing ourselves to let go of those, of those uh, hesitations, those fears, those uh, concerns that prevent us from uh, opening ourselves, our hearts, our minds to what we might call the everyday sublime. Because again, it's not just the 
heavens, starry heavens and violent storms and these things that are sublime. But I think when your mind becomes more still, when you become more present, uh, when the habits of our neurotic thinking begin to die down, as they may during a retreat such as this, for example, that allows us somehow to experience the sublimity of uh, the most simple things. Good snowflakes. They don't fall anywhere else. The snowflake is just as sublime as uh, the Milky Way. And I think this is an experience that is often reported on retreats, is that um, there's something about this process uh, that brings us into an intimacy with the ordinary that allows the ordinary to be revealed as extraordinary. Perhaps to conclude, um, one of the most precise definitions of son meditation practice is found um, in a letter written by Keats. And this is the famous idea of negative capability. Uh, basically what we're doing is we're practicing negative capability on this retreat. And how did Keats define negative capability? Uh, he said, quote, uh, that is when a man is capable of resting in mysteries, uncertainties, and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. That is, when a man is capable of resting in mysteries, uncertainties, and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Now, Keats knew nothing about Zen Buddhism. But that definition captures um, what the practice of what is this as well as, if not better, than what you'll find in the Zen texts. And even more so, the one word that might have rung a little bit false in that text is the word irritable. And with no irritable reaching after fact or reason. We have to remember that Keats trained initially as an apothecary and then as a, uh, he was a training to be a, a surgeon. He was apprenticed to a surgeon. And in the early 19th century, irritable in the context of uh, medicine meant reflexive. In other words, a limb was irritable if you tapped it on the knee and it had a reflexive kick. So irritable didn't mean slightly pissed off <laughs> in the way that we use the word today. But it meant uh, basically... Um, uh, unconsciously reflexive. So without any irritable reaching after fact or reason, basically means without any kind of automatic, reflexive, reactive reaching after fact or reason. So in that sense, it's very, very close. Because what happens when we ask, what is this? When we, in other words, when we try to rest in mysteries, uncertainties, and doubts, the mind irritably, or let's say reactively, tries to latch onto something. And you may have noticed when asking this question that uh, there can be something rather uncomfortable about it, something rather spooky, uh, something rather unsettling even though at the same time you find it kind of engaging and seductive. And to somehow foreclose this openness of inquiry, uh, the mind jumps onto some idea. It may be that you think you've come up with the right answer, 
usually a suitably zen kind of answer. Or you simply find yourself um, conceptualizing some, some idea, some theory, some uh, story, some explanation that is much more easy to live with than resting in this, um, in, 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 in this sustained sense of unknowing and questioning, the two of which are going hand in hand. We'll talk about the unknowing aspect of it tomorrow morning. So, I'm going to end here. Um, I hope that has given you a sense of how we might, uh, where we might locate this practice in the context of the kind of world that um, is familiar at one level, but also, I think, um, profoundly unsettling at another, if we really allowed ourselves to think about it. If we put aside you know, the religious consolations that so often uh, somehow buffer us against having to be open to the sublimity of the world as we know it. And I would hope that this kind of practice is not just some exercise from a Eastern Buddhist tradition, but it provides us with uh, skills, um, uh, abilities, um, not just to look into classical koans, but to confront the koan of our own life, but also the koan of um, this universe, this reality that we are temporarily inhabiting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.